Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Mary Randolph Carter, or Carter, as she prefers to be known, has worked high up at Ralph Lauren for decades. She's a creative director there. That's her day job. In her free time, she collects stuff. She calls it junk, and she has a lot of junk. In her apartment in New York, where she and her family have lived for decades, her walls are filled with old pictures, portraits, photos, still lifes, that kind of thing. She stacks books under desks, along the walls, sometimes just in the middle of the floor. If you're sitting on her sofa with a drink, your best bet is probably to hold on to it. More often than not, her coffee table, which almost certainly is an antique, is covered in vases and little sculptures and probably a bunch more books. Always more books. Does her place look busy? Yes, a little. But it doesn't look cluttered. It's deliberate. It's thoughtful. It's welcoming. It's warm. Everything in it has a story. Maybe the goofy-looking bird knick-knack on the shelf over there is something she picked up on a road trip 10 years ago. Or maybe the portrait in the living room reminds her of a relative that she lost years ago, even though she bought it at a swap meet in Queens. It's all junk, like she says, but that doesn't mean it's worthless. It's what makes her home her home. She's written a handful of books about junk, photos of flea markets, guides to antique stores, design inspiration, and a philosophy of design so articulate and simple she summarizes it in her book titles, like A Perfectly Kept House is the Sign of a Misspent Life, or Never Stop to Think Do I Have a Place for This. And in her latest book, The Joy of Junk, Go Right Ahead, Fall in Love with the Wackiest Things, Find the Worth in the Worthless, Rescue and Recycle the Curious Objects that Give life, and happiness. We're replaying my interview with her from a couple years ago because, I don't know, maybe you're still stuck at home. Maybe you're trying to get organized and clean up. Maybe you're wondering what of your stuff sparks joy and what doesn't. And Carter's answer to that question might be, what if it's okay if all of it sparks joy? Anyway, let's get into the interview. Carter, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Jesse. I'm really very happy to be here. You grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Did you grow up in a house full of stuff? Hmm, I have to think about that. It was uh, certainly a house full of children and people, and I guess we had a lot of stuff, too. Yes, I would say we had a lot of stuff, but not as much as we had later when we left Richmond. <laughs> How did you think about your home? Like, was it totally transparent to you or did you think of it as a special place? Oh, totally a special place. It was, uh, you know, it's funny because I've lived in New York l- longer than I've li- I lived in, in Richmond or in Virginia. And still, when we go to Virginia, which is where my I always say, we're going home. And my husband says, no, but that's not your home. But someplace in my heart and bones, it's still home. So yes, it was a very special place because of, because of the people and the stuff and the dogs and the cats and the parakeet, Ernie, that I had. 
But I left Richmond when I was probably around 12 years old. So, and moved down to the northern neck of Virginia, the Tidewater area on the Chesapeake Bay and the Rappahannock River. And I, I think, so my homes are kind of split. But Richmond was where I was born and where I, you know, lived until I was 12 and maybe maybe furnishing that little dollhouse that I had up on the third floor was where that junker streak began when I was looking for those odd things to make it special for my dolls. We left that home rather unexpectedly because we had a, um, a very tragic fire one night and lost three of my family. So eventually we actually... I wouldn't say fled, but the memories from my mother, particularly she lost her father and her great aunt and her aunt and her sister, um, were too much to bear. And so we moved to the Tidewater area where we had lived in a funny old barn in the summertime, and we started our lives over down there and created a new home for ourselves. Did having that experience of that tragic fire change your relationship with home and with stuff? Certainly with stuff. I think you learned that even though someone kindly found my one of my dolls, or actually I think a teddy bear that was, was saved, um, we, uh, yes, of course, we lost we lost the things that were important to us, and and all the other things didn't matter. And then I guess I have to share. With, I don't know why I'm taking you through the tragedies of my young life, but then when we moved to um, Whitestone, into this, into River Barn was the name of our house. Um, when I was 16, which would have been about three and a half or four years later, we had another fire. <laughs> and at this time, we were all saved, meaning my mother and father and my two brothers and sisters. There were there are nine of us. We lost our dog who went back in to find my father. But the next day when I walked over, it was a big sand pile of ashes. So we really lost everything. But we didn't because that night when we stood there counting each other over and over again to see if we had, we were all there, there was one sister missing, and then we realized that she had gone to an overnight party. We were all saved, and um, all the stuff, the books, the paintings, the photographs, Everything was gone. You know, I've seen pictures of your apartment in New York and your <laughs> home uh, in New York State. Yes. And, you know, in your apartment, there's there's hardly an inch of wall that isn't covered <laughs> with <laughs> that isn't covered with a, a painting or something else. And I wonder if that was always the way that your home looked. I mean, like once you had your own house, did, was it always was it always chock a block? Well, it took time. You know, I'm very old, and I've had, I've been collecting for many years. So when you know, the thing is, 
I mean, when I moved to New York and had my first, you know, five-floor walk-up studio apartment, I brought with me things from Virginia, from my home, like a blue-painted rocking chair, a few old quilts, a sampler to put on the wall, things that were kind of totems, I suppose, of that life that I loved but couldn't wait to get away from. <laughs> I was destined to come to, to, to the city for a long time. But I still wanted to create the environment, obviously you know this by looking at those pictures, the environment that I place myself in and that I've created for me and for my family eventually. Um, everything is, it's very, very, very important to me. So to start off in that apartment, I needed things that I could relate to and made me feel comfortable and were a thread to the life. And so... So slowly, yes, I mean, it was easy to cover the walls in a studio apartment, but I think that, yeah, every place that we've lived, and we've lived, you know, we've lived in the apartment, which is not, it's kind of strange for urban dwellers, but we've lived in the same apartment for um, like four decades. I mean, I think the real question that all, all of us who want to acquire furniture and things to put on the walls face is where do you put a television? <laughs> that like is, is, is there something you can put in front of the television? That is something, yes, that we all have, we've all had to, to deal with. And particularly when the TV sets started getting bigger and bigger, you know, these widescreen, whatever you call them, you're a flat screen, sure. Flat screen. Okay, the big flat screen. Well, this is, this, is, this is the most wonderful serendipitous moment. I'd gone into this, let's say this is two years ago, and they were shopping, my husband was shopping for this big flat screen to put in the country house, and I was like, oh, no, no, you can't disassemble my beautiful little front parlor. But anyway... Um, and so I happened at the same the same moment that he was doing that. I was hunting down a cupboard. Well, I wasn't hunting for it, but it stood in front of me, this big, beautiful blue cupboard. And I bought it, not thinking about where it would go or what would go in it. But guess what fit perfectly in it? The flat screen TV. And then I surrounded it with all kinds of objets and books there have been times when I have, you know, actually put like an old quilt on top of the t of the flat screen, but no, I'm living with it now. <laughs> <laughs> but that was just so incredible. My my desire for this for this cupboard and my husband's desire for the flat screen, they met and married and li- are living happily ever after in the front parlor of our room that used to be called the purposeless room because it really didn't have a purpose. I mean, my husband would say, what is this room? It's not a TV room. It's not a dining room. I said, well, originally it was the front parlor. And we then we put his mother's baby grand. We stuffed that in the corner. And uh, then I said, well, we can call it the music room. But eventually, now it's the TV room. How did you end up becoming... A junker, because I don't imagine that there's a huge volume of junkers in, in the New York City magazine business where you cut your teeth for a couple of decades. New York is a hard place to be a junker because you kind of got to go somewhere to get the space 
to have a flea market. Well, that's true. But you forget about junking on the city streets. I mean, it is a gold mine out there. I mean, I find things all the time. So it's not just and 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 New Yorkers that that dealers are very clever. They take weekend parking lots that are abandoned for the weekend and they turn them into flea markets. But I I will tell you, it's harder and harder to find those places. But um, oh, junk is alive and well in New York City for sure. I have evidence of it in this book. Do you have a favorite junk store? One of your old books had a directory of junk <laughs> stores by location. Mm-hmm, and, by state or, yeah. Yeah, and I, I was looking through it, and I saw this shop called Crim's Crams. Oh, my was... gosh. Yes. <laughs> In San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. It was right near where I grew up. Oh. And this book came out, I guess, maybe 1990 or something like that. So I, that, that was probably around when it ended up closing. But... I, re- I had the most immediate, vivid flashes of memory of being, you know, an eight-year-old and going there and buying a lunchbox. Really? And borrowing tw- 20 cents. It cost 20 cents. They told me it cost 20 cents. So I went home to my house, to my apartment, and my mom's apartment, and got my mom to give me t- two dimes so that I could. This is like a story from 1952, but it was like 1989, to get this Super Friends lunchbox at Crim's Crams. <laughs> Yeah, I grew up t- two blocks from that store. I thought, like, w- what an incredible, like, vivid part of my life that store was. And I wonder if there were stores like that for you. Well, certainly. And, I mean, I remember Crim- Crim's Cram or whatever it was called. What a great name. I mean, I was doing big city junk. Uh, no, I wasn't. I was doing kitchen junk, which was my third book in the uh, – my version of the Alexandrian Quartet. Uh, (laughs) There was American junk, and then there was garden junk, and then there was kitchen junk and big city junk, which was published a week after 9-11. How ironic was that? Um, But anyway, uh, I I was, you know, I was was going from city to city and looking for great, you know, junk, and and Crim Crams, I remember, had great kitchen artifacts it was a great store but do i have i've oh yeah there i have i have favorites you know part of it part of this whole journey part of it's nostalgic and so when i think about some of my favorite stores or junking journeys or jaunts it was with my mother who really was you know the book is dedicated to my mother who was mary randolph as well but they called her pat but we would go to the Outer Banks of North Carolina in the summer. It was really became an escape for my parents because we always used to come down to Virginia in the summertime and stay with them. But they never got away, you know. So they, they eventually bought this little cottage in the Outer Banks um, of North Carolina. And we would go down there at the end of every summer. I don't know why. We went at the end of the summer, I guess, because we felt... That was a good way to end the summer, to be all together. But it was also hurricane season, so we always were being left, you know, we always had to leave, you know, when there was a threat of a hurricane. But any in any case, when we were there, we spent a lot of time junking together. And there was a little shop called Merry-Go-Round Thrift Shop. The Merry-Go-Round Thrift Shop. I can see it right now. It was just a, it was probably, it was a shed, it was a shack, 
And it was, where was it? I can't remember which town it was in. But that was the first place that we always went. And it was a real bona fide thrift shop, just filled with the discards of the detrius of people's, you know, kitchens and drawers and, you know, closets. But we always, my mother, my gosh, she always found something. She was a great mentor um, in, 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 my, in my junking life. She was just a great mentor. She had a lot of optimism that she would find something. She had a, a lot of stamina. Let's go to five more places. Um, and she never left empty-handed. And some people say, some people have asked me, well, do you ever leave a place and empty-handed? And I have to say, no. <laughs> I always find something. It's a bit of a disease. <laughs> Sometimes I really have to push myself. No, there has to be something here that speaks to me. Maybe there was one or two places. We have even more with Mary Randolph Carter still to come. After a short break, we'll talk about her other big occupation, creative director at Ralph Lauren, one of the largest clothing companies in the world. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Comedian Nicole Byer doesn't consider herself body positive. She just accepts herself as is. I hate that there's a name for, like, not hating a part of who you are. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's insane. Nicole Byer on her new book, Very Fat, Very Brave, and How to Love Yourself. Listen to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Dead Pilot Society brings you exclusive readings of comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Patton Oswalt. So the vampire from the future sleeps in the dude's studio during the day, and they hunt monsters at night. It's Blade meets the odd couple. Adam Scott and Jane Levy. Come on, Corey. She's too serious, too businessy. She doesn't know the hokey pokey. Well, she'll learn what it's all about. <laughs> Busy Phillips and Dave Keckner. Baby, this is family. My uncle Tell, who showed his wiener to Cinderella at Disneyland, is family. Do you want him staying with us? He did stay with us for three months. And he was a delight. <laughs> a new pilot every month, only on Dead Pilot Society for Maximum Fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mary Randolph Carter. She and I talked in 2018. She's a creative director at Ralph Lauren and an expert in the world of collecting. She's the author of a bunch of beautiful books about the topic. Her latest, The Joy of Junk, is out now. Let's get back into our conversation. To me, one of the great joys of buying something old is that there are, it kind of contains two sets of possibilities. One is like an almost abstract, almost purely abstract aesthetic value, right? Something is beautiful in some way. Yes. That speaks to you. The second is that it contains this almost infinite narrative potentiality because you don't necessarily know what life it had before it was in your hands but you know that it had some life. And I, I often feel like if I go into a store and buy a printer, it it's dead to me. <laughs> no soul. Yeah, I mean, it's because it hasn't done anything, you know? <laughs> it hasn't lived. Whereas, you know, I I think often of what it must have been like before 
I bought this peacoat at a garage sale in Portland, Oregon when I was 17, you know? Like, I, it doesn't get cold enough very often in Los Angeles, but I hold on to it in part because of the role it has had in my life, but in part because I know that it has had a life before that. And when your home is full of that, it, fe- it can feel full of life. When we first moved into this apartment and it sort of became a, a scrapbook <laughs> of our lives and of other people's lives, um, and people would walk into it with different expectations of a New York City apartment, and they'd walk in and they'd feel enveloped by some kind of country, I'd say, in the beginning, I was probably collecting things that were more country-ish, um, but they were just kind of enveloped by, I mean, the, look, what I was raised being the eldest of nine, living in this old house with this big family, it was always about how your home felt and how people felt in it, that we met people at the door and hug them or whatever. I mean, or just please go in the kitchen and, and help uh, carry, peel the potatoes. But there was always this thing about making people feel at home. And I think the things and, and that your home was personal and comfortable and felt lived in. And I think that when you do find and borrow borrow things that have had that are old and weathered and tattered in some cases and patched that's evidence of a life lived and there's a comfort and and there yeah and there's like a mystery i just feel that yes our home is filled with with pieces of other people's lives and and there's a spirit and a soul and i think that when people walk in to our home as they did into my family's home. They felt they felt that intangible kind of connection, a spirit of of warmth and love and hopefully some hospitality was provided. You've worked for the past 25 years or so at Ralph Lauren yes. as a creative director, working first on advertisements and um in recent years on a wide variety of kind of uh, various stuff, books and things like that. Yeah. And I was thinking about Ralph Lauren as a brand and idea. I mean, he's also a man who you know, um, but I imagine you've spent a lot of time thinking about the idea of the brand as well. I think that he was a kid that grew up and you read you read it over and over again. You know, he was just he says a normal kid. I played stickball. I wanted to be Joe DiMaggio or Mickey Mantle. I wanted to be a movie star. I loved to play basketball. I didn't. He didn't know what a designer was. And maybe he went to camp and he met some different kinds of people. And then one day he walked into Brooks Brothers and he, he kind of loved loved what he saw. But you know, I mean, for Ralph. When he he was the youngest of uh, four, and he had two older brothers, and he and his older brother, Jerry, they're incredibly close, and Jerry's worked in the company for many years, they would go out um, to Army-Navy stores, 
and they and Ralph would start to to fall in love with things that he would call classic and timeless and and that that were built for a purpose like a safari jacket or some kind of a military jacket or a bomber jacket or a pair of chinos um and i think that he loved I heard a story once that he was, I think he was in, he might have been in, in France, and and he, some, he saw a waiter that had on this beautiful white jacket, and he had to have it. He thought it was it was so beautiful and timeless. I think that, that Ralph just um, created these worlds that he wanted to be part of, but they were all built on authenticity and utility and I think the reason that he's just celebrated 50 years is because he's always been about things that had a kind of style that would endure because they weren't fashion, they weren't trendy in and out. But I know the, I know the first time we met <laughs> in his office on 40 West 55th, and I walked into his office... I was working at Condé Nast at the time for I'd helped start Self Magazine and I had been at Mademoiselle and I'd been a guest editor and I loved what I did and I loved magazines and I had no idea of going anyplace else until I walked into his office and he was, of course, wearing old weather jeans, probably Levi's, um, and his office was filled with stuff, little toy cars and, and a beautiful photograph of JFK and, and, and drawings that his children had done and Navajo blankets. And, I mean, it, it was, I felt like I was at home, you know, and, and we talked for hours. And he was so curious about my family and how I grew up. And he, I think he said, Carter, you live the life that I've kind of been creating. <laughs> and then he said, um, eventually I came back to him. I'd written my first book, American Family Style. It was published in 88, and I asked him if he would write the foreword to it. And he said, okay, Carter, I'm joining your family, so I want you to join mine. <laughs> That's, that was the script. Well, Carter, Mary Randolph Carter, I'm, I'm so grateful that you took the time to come on uh, Bullseye, and I've enjoyed all of your books so much. Um, there's a big stack of them in my house, so thanks for doing this. I really, really appreciated it. I don't know if we really... Did we talk about junk? <laughs> yeah, we did. I mean, we could list our favorite flea markets or whatever. <laughs> Mary Randolph Carter. Call her Carter for short. All of her books are great. A warm loving testament to collecting and design. Her newest, The Joy of Junk, is in bookstores now. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, my three-year-old recently informed me that he is married to his brother, my six-year-old, and also that he glows in the dark. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We also get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne.
And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 